now. So, all right. Well, this is Saturday morning, or for you guys, Friday evening, <clears throat> Sangha, and we've already been talking for a while about practice and doing versus um, uh, learning about. And most people spend a lot of time learning about meditation and not so much time actually doing it. And so uh, there's many things that are like that. We've mentioned music, math, learning how to do psychotherapy, uh, coding for computers, many, many different activities have a lot of didactic information, but they don't, ha but it, uh, if the student isn't given experimental or experiential or lab work, they called it in college, right? The lab is where you learn. And so uh, here we are sitting in meditation or with a meditation book or a Dhamma book or something like that. Much of that time is is uh, in just spinning the mind about it, which is if you're thinking about Dhamma is a much better thing to think about because it's always wholesome. Right. That's one of the beautiful parts about the Dhamma is, is that it's good in the beginning, it's good right. in the middle, and it's good in the end. It's wholesome all along. So anytime that we're thinking about the Dhamma, we're much better off than thinking about almost anything else. However, <laughs> if we only think about the Dhamma, without actually having those thoughts uh, intentionally having an influence, then we're kind of in, an, in another way wasting our time. Because the whole point is that we need to practice making beautiful music, whether that beautiful music is the sound that we call music or coding, that in fact computer coding can be uh music in the sense that it's an algorithm you know what an algorithm is in fact the definition is a step-by-step -step sequence of events that's guaranteed to give the desired results but not only is it step by step but it's often repetitive we want it to do the same thing over and over again if we only needed to do it one time then a human could probably have done it without a computer like we can uh the insurance company for instance could send out one bill and they wouldn't need a uh a, a computer or a law firm can have one client and they just bill all their time to that one client, you wouldn't need a computer for that, right? The fact is, is that it's repetitive over and over and over and over and over again. That's what makes the computer valuable. And funny thing is like us humans, we don't like to do it over and over again. Once we learn how to do it, then we think that fine, my job is done here. Yeah, <laughs> that's what and I felt yet, like uh, recently. I felt, um, like, oh, I don't need the jhanas anymore. But like, that's just uh, because you're already in the jhana is why you're saying that. 
<laughs> once you fall out, once you fall out of the genre, you're gonna be like, oh, I want to be back in that genre. But uh, mm-hmm. I think the problem is um, people not actually doing meditation is because they think it's um, some kind of like daunting uh, lifetime journey instead of something like that's actually enjoyable and like really easy. Well, if we practice at something, it becomes easy. That when the young child sits down to chopsticks for the first time to learn it, it's hard. Everything is hard when you do it the first time. Because we don't know how to do it because we've never done it before. So every time we do something for the first time, we have to. Um, let us say, begin to use new skills or to apply other skills or skills that we've learned another place on this. An example of that is is that people who um, move from brass instrument to brass instrument, that's not a hard thing to do. To move from French horn to trombone is actually a fairly easy thing to do. Also, woodwinds. There's two kinds of woodwinds based upon the register. Some woodwinds have a register of an octave and others have a, 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 a register of an octave and a fifth, like a clarinet. So the clarinet players, which depending upon which register they're in, have a completely different fingering for the note. That gives clarinet players the, uh, the possibility of just brushing out to all of the, the reed instruments. And that I, I have seen some professionals, in fact, the uh, the one that I remember the most, uh, his name was Bill Page. Uh, and he was uh, with Lawrence Welk. But my the band director of the town that I was in happened to have been in that industry already. And so he invited Bill Page to come and he, um, when he arrived, he waited for two days for the truck to arrive with his musical instruments because he brought them all, including double contrabassoons and uh, uh, big um, uh, uh, bass uh saxophones, all that kind of stuff, and and played a medley. I think he had about 40 different instruments that he brought, piccolos and all kinds of stuff uh, to give that demonstration. But that points to the fact that once you've learned one, you can then step and use those skills for other things. Looks like Daniel has, has uh, or is that David? It's uh, David, yeah, just jumping on real quickly to hear. Okay, so we're talking about skills that are transferable. Some of the skills that we need in meditation, we've already, some people have already collected those skills together. Okay, that in fact, people who practice music become fairly good meditators because they've already got the quality of the repetitive rehearsing over and over and over again, making slight improvements over time. Also, coders and mathematicians, they're able to cut through um, 
things. And so there's various skills that we have that allow us to um, practice meditation or Anapanasati correctly. And then there are some people who have other skills like martial artists will have the skill of learning how to be here now quickly. And, and so uh, sports and way. Yes. Yes. And and it seems that we kind of divide our society in the sense of you're either going to go into music and the arts or you're going to go into sports. Yeah. There seems to be a kind of a dividing line, and yet both of those worlds have skills that are uh, useful, valuable, and appropriate for our practice of meditation. So if we can learn to apply those skills that we've learned, now we can practice Anapanasati using those new, those old skills, and then we develop new skills that we need. And that's one of the things that's really important for us to recognize uh, is that much of Anapanasati is skill development. In the Anapanasati Sutta, it, um, every one of them has the quality of thus one trains oneself. And it, and in fact, you could say that there's a, um, um, a standard or a stock way of saying it. Uh, mindfully he breathes in and mindfully he breathes out while he develops dada. Thus he trains oneself. So you take the appropriate one and you plug it in there. So mindfully breathing in long and mindfully breathing out long, he um, understands the body or he investigates the body. Thus one trains oneself. Or uh, mindfully breathing in long, mindfully breathing out long, he uh, relaxes the body. Thus one trains oneself. Then we do that with the sukha also or up with uh, uh, the mind, that he investigates the mind while breathing in long and breathing out long, mindfully breathing in long and mindfully breathing out long, <clears throat> he uh, investigates the mind. Thus, he trains oneself. And then another one would be gladdening the mind. While breathing in long and breathing out long, thus one trains oneself to gladden the mind. And so these are these are trainings. Go ahead, Scott. So you essentially just walked us through uh, jhana one through four, um, gladdening the mind being the first jhana. Is that correct? The so. Actually, the, the gladdening the mind is only a small part of it, that the whole quality, if we understand the word um, samadhi, we can use it in two different ways. The samadhi of organizing the mind, bringing all the constituent components of the mind together so that the outcome of the Eightfold Noble Path is right organization of mind. And then we can use it in the other way in the sense of uh, 
uh, <clears throat> jhana because jhana is gathering the factors together of the first jhana. Now, in some suttas, there's five, and in other uh, occasionally, there are suttas in uh, a six. Anapanasati actually uh, uh, adds that sixth one, but it doesn't ever number them. But it does talk about the five or uh, the six factors of Anapanasati's jhana is number one, if we're gladdening the mind, the mind is free from hindrances, which is the number one thing. If we're investigating the mind and gladdening the mind over and over again, that means we're applying the mind to the wholesome and sustaining the mind on the wholesome. And there it is. And then the next one would be sukha. If we, in fact, are practicing anapanasati by gladdening the mind, and actually experience the gladdening of the mind, that experience is actually the feelings themselves following along. We literally talk ourselves into feeling good. We do that all our whole lives without recognizing that the kinds of thoughts that we have uh, influence our feelings and the kind of feelings that we have influence in our thoughts. Now we're using that as a skill to actually gladden the mind so as to influence how we feel. And how do we feel? Well, the items on the list of sukha is number one, safety and security, and then comfort, and then satisfaction. Those are the items uh, in the Pali Dictionary defining the word sukha. Yes, Scott. Uh, I have a question about uh, PT. I think I was in um, a pretty, pretty like uplifted state the other day. Um, a lot of PT. There was sukha too, but it was, it was, uh, it was really enjoyable in the beginning of the day. But then as the day carried on and it started to be nighttime, I couldn't really go to sleep. Because I was, it was still going, so I guess I forgot to do the resting part. Because <laughs> it was just, it was wide, you know, it's wide awake, and I couldn't sleep mm -hmm. until like, I couldn't sleep until like three a.m. and then, for and then I woke up at like six a.m. So <laughs> I don't know if there's like a, if there's something else that I should do. To, to get Absolutely to no, no, no. This is actually um, well understood. Um, let's go back and round things up just a moment by talking about the various jhana factors that are actually directly um, in the items of the um, Anapanasati Sutta which would be basically the investigation of the mind, the gladdening the mind, the applying the mind, the sustaining the mind, the development of the sukha, then the development of the pity, and then back to the sukha later. But as we're developing those things, the sixth item on the list is the body relaxes. Okay, that's the key element. If you are in fact in a state of jhana and the body is um, relaxed and the mind is kind of elated, 
then when you're going back to ordinary life, like an ordinary night with ordinary sleep, things have gotten different now because you're adding different ingredients to it. That normally people sleep at night. Why? Because they're tired. Why are they tired? Because they're not energized. That, that the body is on cycles anyway. And uh, um, the, the point is that we should get all the rest that we need. I've got students who, because of the job that they've got and their dedication and devotion, they spend too much time on the job and not enough time resting. And I highly recommend rest. And we talk about going to sleep and all that kind of stuff as part of our practice. But you, now you're talking about something David, new. David, can you, can, David, can you mute your mic for a sec? It's causing a lot oh, of Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank Sorry you. about that, man. Thank you. Okay, so um, in this jhana state where the mind is um, comfortable and relaxed and feeling safe and secure, where the body is relaxed, but the mind is also bright and alert. This is a time then when we go to bed in that state, the mind is not really ready for sleep. It's not tired. Not tired. That is elated, in fact. This state of mind is um, what in the suttas, most specifically sutta number two in the Majjhima Nikaya, talks about practicing wakefulness now this is something that i don't talk to westerners much about because they normally have a schedule but a monk or someone who is on retreat can actually practice this in the sense that the clock is no longer important you see if you've got a nine to five job then you need to do it in this in the schedule that fits in with that job but if in fact you are free from that kind of schedule, then you can begin to practice some of these deeper things that the Buddha is talking about, including the practice of wakefulness. And the reason that we can stay awake and not go to sleep is simply because, number one, we're not tired in the first place. Number two, we're not using the mind in ways where it needs to be repaired. An example of that is much of the dreaming that we do is just thoughts that we have when we're asleep. Uh, these can be visual thoughts, they can be a story, all kinds of things can happen, but generally the dreaming that we do is the mind's trying to solve riddles or problems from our wakeful life. And so the Buddha talks about it in the sense of uh, burning by day and smoldering by night. But here you are now going to bed without a mind that's smoldering or tired. All right, you're going to sleep or going to bed with a bright, shiny mind. 
And now you're complaining and asking me what to do about it as if sleep were more important than having a bright, shiny mind. Yeah, I guess I'm just, I, 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 uh, I equate not being able to, because usually you equate not being able to sleep with some kind of anxiety, but that's not what uh, was happening this time. But then it's like the way I thought of like, oh, why can't I sleep? Am I anxious about something? But that's not, it was more just like, yeah, I was like uplifted. No, awake. you're not sleeping because yeah. you're not tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the, uh, and so this is what we mean by, in fact, wakefulness. And there are things that the monks do intentionally for this. One of them is, uh, depending upon the group and, and which way they practice, some do the paddy milk twice a month and others do it once a month. I've been in monasteries that, uh, on both sides. But at Watson Milk, at paddy milk, one of the things that is done is the night before Patty Mark, everyone is up. And that uh, um, that everyone ha it's got a quality of like. At a school. When they do a fire drill, everybody's in the fire drill. Right, so mm -hmm. at Patty Mark, everybody's in the Patty Mark more or less. And that part of that has to do with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would often give a talk. Starting at 2 a.m. The talk starts local time at 2 a.m. Which means uh, the hour before that people are taking their place and meditating and whatnot like that, but they probably didn't go to sleep anyway. And so uh, then Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would talk until sunrise which meant talking until time to go to Patty Mark. Oh, excuse me, bend about, which means going out on arms ramp. <clears throat> and I remember specifically uh, that this was the time for joss sticks. You know what, a joss stick, I guess you would use the word incense sticks, but we don't use them for incense. We use them to keep the bugs and the mosquitoes away. And so we book put one on each uh, each corner, you put one outside the knees and in, in the back. And those just sticks will last about 20 minutes. And then the uh, uh, the bombardment starts again. And so you uh, light up more just sticks about once every 20 minutes and just kind of sit there all night long. And we practice that on a regular basis to sit up and stay up all night. It's part of the training. Now, in the West, especially with medicines and especially with people who are selling sleepwear. I mean, look at the industry that we have around sleep. Pajamas and beds and bedrooms and all kinds of other stuff, um, and including eyewear and look at the pharmaceutical industry. And that in our society, sleep is highly, highly rated. Within the time of the Buddha, people could sleep any time that they wanted to because they didn't even have clocks. Other than the concept of making hay while the sun shine, other than that, it doesn't mean anything much. 
And so uh, in in older societies, um, people would spend up uh, much of the night, possibly because of security. Or if you are living in northern climates where you have to keep a fire going, but you don't have anything but primitive fire making equipment, you don't want that fire to go out at 4 a.m. All right, so people are going to have to tend fires. There's all kinds of reasons for us to be up at night. But now that we have electricity, and now that we have uniformity of the day belongs to the boss, but the electricity is uh, uh, there uh, to light up the night, we still have now gotten attached to this ritualized cycle of uh, waking in the daytime and sleeping at night. And it also has to do with biology, that people who work different shifts, like every three months, they change shifts so that the people who work the day shift now are going to be working evening or second shift. And the ones who were working second shift now have to work the night shift. And nobody winds up, even though that's a fair system, so everybody has to work at night. No one likes it. It is actually better for people who get into the routine of working at night can do that. But that's one of the things that I had gotten into the habit of when I was in high school is because I would spend all night tinkering with my toys. And I had a lot of toys. I had ham radios and uh, oscilloscope and uh, uh, electronic equipment and musical equipment and all of that. And so um, my team. My yeah, I've, I've been playing yeah. video games all night, too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And and so uh, my routine actually began to be something like this, that uh, that at six in the morning, I would go out and, and uh, deliver newspapers on the motorbike. And then I would go to school. And in the first class, I'd do the, the homework that needed to be done in the rest of the school for the day. And then I would sleep in school for most of the time until it was time for band rehearsal, which was uh, at about two in the afternoon, the last class at school. And so then I would wake up to go to band class and after band, go home and play with my toys again. And that would be my my routine that I did most of my sleeping in school, intentionally almost, just because that was the habit that I had gotten into. Uh, and so when I got into university, that was an easy thing to fall into also uh, because I worked all night literally at the state hospital, the state hospital of South Carolina that had South Carolina's most insane people. I got to spend the night with them night after night after night. Being the custodian and in the mornings we gave uh, medications and drew blood and did all of that kind of stuff before breakfast. So. Um, pulling all nighters in at watch so and moke that was a piece of cake for me. I already knew how to stay up all night. And I remember many, many ceremonies. One of the ceremonies that we had was at. Um, uh, Wat Lao, Washington, D.C to where the monks stayed up all night, about a hundred of us. I mean, they were from all over the place. 
and we stayed up uh, and did some chanting for a while and sitting for a while and whatnot like that. So this is actually a common thing for the monks to sit up in a group all night long. Now, in the old days, what there's nothing much to it. It's only because we have the idea of clocks. Clocks and electricity have tremendously changed human existence. So can you actually plan your time so that occasionally you don't have to worry about a clock? Yeah, actually, that's pretty much how it is for me. I, I only work on the weekends. So all week, pretty much, I just practice the Dhamma, I guess. <laughs> I know. Now I have only one micro attack a week. Micro attack? Yeah. The thought of, oh, I've got to get up at nine o'clock tomorrow morning to talk to you guys on Saturday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I had that, like, oh, I have work tomorrow. But it's only once a week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the way of beginning to answer your question about if you're in a really, really good state because of your practice, then you're not you're not feeling sleepy. You don't feel tired. Isn't that marvelous? Yeah. The reason that we go to sleep is because we're tired. And now we've gotten it to the point that, oh, you're supposed to sleep. Where in fact, there's no reason to sleep because you're not tired. That this is the practice of wakefulness is to practice being in a state that's so relaxed that you don't get tired enough that you've got to go to sleep. Yeah, I guess that's why uh, I didn't have to wake up. But when I went to sleep, I woke up like three hours later mm -hmm. at like 6 a.m. So like even if which I is could just sleep, further proof that yeah. you really didn't need to sleep at all. Yeah, or else I would have just slept in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So congratulate yourself. You're you're moving along. That we're oh, beginning yeah. now to practice wakefulness that we don't have to devote half our lives to the sleep, which is nothing but the repairing of the damage that we've done all day. If you're not going to be doing any damage all day, then you don't need to sleep all night. Now, I can hear the doctors and the sleep therapists screaming at the top of their lungs hearing that. But they're dealing with a society of people who need to sleep because they're already trapped in the prison of working throughout the day, getting themselves upset and anxious and, and uptight all day long. And so they need that relaxation in the sleep at night. But if you go that's to bed their, already relaxed, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, that's their only Nibbana moments is going to sleep, actually. All the whole day they're in the hindrances are like in restlessness. And then when they actually manage to fall asleep that's the only time they are relaxing but if you're like constantly relaxed your mind is already at ease so mm -hmm. it doesn't it's 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 not using more energy than necessary so you have like a lot of energy left like at your disposal mm -hmm. so this is what the buddha means by wakefulness and it is actually a training that the monks do and and you have the opportunity for that. So um, 
one of the ways then of doing it is that when you lay down at night, instead of having thoughts of, I've got to go to sleep, instead, we will have thoughts of, isn't this nice? I can lay here in bed with no place to go and nothing to do. And I've got eight hours. I could just lay here, just luxuriate in laying in bed with no place to go and nothing to do. Maybe drift in and out of consciousness and have a very, very light sleep. But that only means that the time is moving a lot faster now. But we're not trying to go to sleep because we don't need to go to sleep. That all we really need to do is just enjoy the night. So we pay attention to the bed that we're in, pay attention to the pillow, we pay attention to the covers, we pay attention to the environment that we're in with almost a feeling of gratitude. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> oh, thank you very much, Mr. Bed, for being here. Anytime I want to lay down on you. <laughs> and so that reminds it... me of, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. That reminds me of, um, just like warm summer nights that like the you you uh hear the crickets outside and there's just some really peaceful like stillness to the night that's just kind of like it, it's relaxing in a way that's like special in its own way compared to the day like when I'm walking in the morning, when I'm having my little morning walk and the sun's rising and the birds are chirping, everything's like, yeah, it's super joyous, like super rapturous. And then <laughs> at night, it's like, it's like, ah, it's like nice and quiet. Mm -hmm. Yes, various nights have various qualities like that. Some nights are very, very quiet, very still. Uh, sometimes it's full of the noise of the chirping of cicadas or insects. It just screech, 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 screech. Generally, that's the case. Sometimes the guys who are doing it are just sufficiently far enough from the house that you don't hear them. And sometimes they seem to have come to your house to sing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then recently, we've also had the rhythm of the falling rain punctuated by mm -hmm. uh, the, the sound of the, uh, uh, of the thunder. Mm. And in fact, listening to the rolling thunder, that's a very interesting thing to do. Mm -hmm. It's just listen to, listen to the night. With all the sounds of the night. Uh, and kind of luxuriate in the sense that, yes, it is thundering, it is storming, but we're secure, we're okay. Isn't it marvelous that I don't have to stand out in that weather? But that gives juicy goosebumps to say, you know, yeah, I'm goosebumps. safe, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm secure, everything is nice. And so by having those kind of thoughts, Spending the night is a way of spending the night in jhana. And if you drift in and out of sleep, the sleep that you're drifting in and out of is very, very nourishing. And we wouldn't necessarily call it deep sleep. 
here's something that's very interesting about about sleep anyway is that they've come to understand that there's three levels of it light sleep medium sleep which is also called REM sleep which is where the dreaming is and then there's a deeper sleep and that deeper sleep is very similar to the light sleep for some people and completely different than that from others and here's what <clears throat> kind of means a deep sleep is is that if you're in a deep sleep when you come out of it you generally go through that layer of REM sleep for a while before you come back up to the surface and that what we do with that is is that whatever woke us up whatever input that there was we incorporate that into the dream and they uh had cartoons in the 1930s and all kinds of things to point out how that kind of thing um happens uh that uh and the example is that your foot is getting eaten and you're having a dream about something's got a hold to your foot and then you wake up and you recognize that all oh, the cat had laid down a certain way and was kind of playing with your feet and that gave you the dream of having your foot foot being eaten okay so another one is a noise a noise will go off like a siren or um, an ambulance or something like that and we'll take that and bring it into the dream and dream about an ambulance rather than just merely listening to the sound of the ambulance off in the distance or not hearing it at all so in that very very deep level of sleep we normally then wake up by going through the REM stage. But if the mind is fairly cleaned out, we can go into that deep state and then pop right out of it. We don't have to go through that droggy uh, state that we can go from being completely asleep into being wide awake. That this is, happens, in fact, uh, uh, the most common place for it to be seen to happen is in a horror movie. Where somebody is completely asleep, dead to the world, you'd say, and then the uh, the criminal or the thief or the uh, 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 Jim Jones or <laughs> Freddie or the ghoul or something comes and makes a noise, and all of a sudden we're completely wide awake. Okay, this is how we begin to look at it. Is by uh, Scott, you can actually begin to ask yourself from time to time when you're laying in bed of is this sleep or am I asleep? Am I droggy or am I wide awake? You can start looking at the state of mind, the condition of the mind. This is part of the investigation is begin to ask yourself how sleepy, how tired am I? Or if you're thinking about something, and that key and that thought about something is actually keeping you awake. Okay, you can be thinking about getting the car ready to work tomorrow or anything, but whatever it is that's on our mind, we can let that go. Yes, Scott. Uh, I've heard that's really interesting you bring that up because I've heard people talk about um, after enlightenment or something. They maintain uh, awareness um, throughout every um, stage of sleep, like they like the stateless state. So there's mm -hmm. the waking state, uh, dream state, and the deep sleep. 
and then there's the uh, Taria or um, I, I think I'm yeah Taria or the stateless state that is like like always there. So like they they um, I've heard people claim to be able to like be awake even when they're in deep sleep. Or like, does that make any sense to you? Or do you have any like um, experience of that? Consciousness comes up and down. That in fact, what we can say is, is that we can now begin to make consciousness itself as an object of meditation. And we were doing that by talking about already of how awake or how asleep am I? What level of consciousness? What am I conscious of right now? Uh, that part of that has to do then of, of conscious of a particular sense, like consciousness of hearing. Or is it full bodily consciousness? In other words, do you actually experience being in the bed, knowing that here you are in the bed with the covers, with the blankets, with the uh, pillows, with the uh, paraphernalia uh, that we're wearing, et cetera, like that? So that's one kind of um, awareness. But often uh, other awarenesses have only certain senses like only the sense of sound that that when it's dark it's easy enough that in fact we close our eyes we we do that intentionally but we can't shut out the sound so the so the sound of the rain is falling the sound of the thunder the sound of the crickets or the sound of silence is something that we can pay a lot of attention to while we're laying in bed with no place to go and nothing to do. Or we can listen to our own noise. And so the, the, uh, the way of doing isn't by intentionally listening with our ears to what we can hear. What's going on in the house? What's going on in the yard? Sometimes the dogs are barking. Sometimes they're not. So listening to what's going on throughout the night um, is a kind of a way of staying um, on vigil. And in fact, what I'm talking about right now is something that the dogs do, that I can tell the difference between a dog that's just lying there listening versus when he's actually asleep. And they'll move back and forth between that state of uh, being alert and awake, but appearing to be asleep. Kind of the difference would be the way that that ear is cocked. Do they have an ear cocked? In other words, are they laying in a way that has that ear up in the air? Because they're listening. Okay, so this is one of the qualities that you would want also is to have your head adjusted to the point that you're actually listening. He was doing that while you were talking. The dog's listening to the Dhamma. <laughs> it's a good doggy. Yeah. So, another thing with that, uh, paying attention to the body is also paying attention to the posture that we're in. So, paying attention to the kind of thoughts that we're having, which would be wholesome thoughts everywhere, everything is okay, no place to go, and also having 
paying attention to the way that the body is positioned, whether we're laying on our side or not, any discomfort within the body. And so we keep going back to that issue of finding a place of comfort. And sometimes we want to uh, re readjust our posture during the night when we're asleep. That's a good time for waking up. Then instead of saying, oh, well, if I wake up at 2.30, it'll be hard for me to get back to sleep. Well, now you've got sleep as your most important product, rather than your most important should be enjoying the night. And not worry about, are you getting enough sleep? So one of the things then that we can say is that it's good to wake up during the night. That in fact, that's part of the old ways that humans live, just like the dogs that we have here at the house. And I imagine everyone's like this. The dogs do not have a particular sleeping pattern habit the way that humans have developed in the past few centuries. That sometimes the dogs are up in the middle of the night. And sometimes they're sleeping in the day. But they don't have that kind of schedule. And for some reason, as well trained as our dogs are, the dogs will still sleep when they want to and are awake when they want to. So the dogs in that regard have more freedom than us humans because we're supposed to sleep at night. It's 11 o'clock, go to bed, we tell our kids. And we, we put the kids in that habit uh, when they're little kids. And that kid then grows up with that kind of habit for the rest of his life. But the reality is, is that um, throughout history, humans have not been tied to sleeping at night. But in fact, that's the most dangerous time. It's a very good idea to be up at night at least some people up at night without having the whole city go to sleep. But in fact, in any particular city, there's a whole lot of humans that are up at night. We do have third shift, so that's part of our reality. Why do we then have this um, rule that says that you're supposed to sleep at night? Well, there's really no rule at all. That was just the way we were trained as children to sleep. And so now you can say, well, I can do with my night anything that I want to. Including laying in bed and just enjoying myself. And you don't have to have that sleep because the sleep itself is repairing of the damage that you didn't do. In the day. So this is a way of looking at it. We can, in fact, practice. Uh, wakefulness, but we can practice wakefulness when we go to bed. There's no reason to sit uh, and practice wakefulness while you're writing an email. That doesn't make any sense. You don't have to practice wakefulness and you're already awake. But we can practice wakefulness at night by uh, having the idea that we don't have to pressurize, uh, pressurize ourselves to go to to sleep. Rather, we can just relax and enjoy what we've got right now. And it may be a long time before you go to sleep, or it may be that you wake up 10 minutes later and think that you've been awake for the whole time. 
But this is the way of beginning to look at it that we want to be able to drift in and out of wakefulness and sleep and wakefulness and sleep. And one of the ways that we can do that is by being able to go deeply asleep, get what real restorative work needs to be done at that level. So if any sound is happening, anything that uh, that occurs or just naturally, you're going to wake back up. We don't have to say, oh, well, I need eight solid hours of sleep. Nobody needs eight. Nobody ever gets eight solid hours of sleep. Everyone goes up and down and up and down and up and down through the night. Now, in the very, very beginning of the um, sleep um, experimentation that they were doing many, many years ago, they were coming up with a lot of false data for the following reason that all of the equipment that they were putting on people to analyze their sleep and what they were doing was not portable and it was not cheap. You had to go to the hospital to have your sleep analyzed. Okay, they did that with, uh, um, I forgot what it is. It has something to do with the thyroid and all kinds of stuff that they would uh, hook people up with the um, equipment. Uh, metabolism, that's the word that I'm looking for. And so they would put people in the hospital and the same thing with the MRIs. You know, the, the MRI is a huge, huge machine and people are, uh, it's got a bed on it. You lay down on the bed and then the bed is wheeled into this huge machine, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Those are the old days and the machines themselves had a placebo effect upon the people going to sleep, uh, going to the hospitals to sleep just so that you could have some sleep analyzing is going to destroy your sleep. Yeah. That you, if you're going to monitor sleep correctly with all of these machines, you have to do it in the way that the person normally lives his life. So uh, even a skull cap is probably too much. That, oh, I can't sleep because even though I'm in my own bed at night, the skull cap that I've got is preventing me from going to sleep. Okay, so this is the, the equipment itself often uh, skews the data that the scientists want uh, to collect. That's still a problem with sleep therapy. We can't get good data. And so for that reason, I would uh, not recommend that you read a whole lot of newspaper articles or blogs on the internet about sleep, but rather to experiment with your own body. That's where you're going to learn about sleep is by playing with it, make it a game, make it a, uh, a toy to play with, without putting the pressure on ourselves of, oh, I've got to sleep, because that's just a cultural piece of baggage that we've got. You don't have to sleep. And you can say, well, if I don't sleep, I'll be really tired in the morning. That tiredness is still an attitude. Oftentimes with a little bit of, um, let us say, a cold shower and a cup of coffee, and that tiredness yeah. is gone. Yeah. Or if we think of something that we want to do and the tiredness is gone. Yeah. So this is the way that we can begin to look at that the night is an excellent time to practice the Dhamma. Great opportunity.
And you kind of begin to stumble onto that, that when you get the mind in a really, really good state, the mind's not fit for sleep, it's fit for work. Mm -hmm. And so don't hassle yourself because you can't sleep. Hassling yourself is more damage than loss of sleep. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> So, do you have any questions about this? I think that we fairly well covered the topic of wakefulness, that it's not a disaster, it's a, um, a natural process of developing correct practice. Yeah, I think that clears it up for me. Um, makes complete sense. Uh, also, I think it um, that way of approaching sleep is more likely to help you if you actually need sleep um you're more likely to fall asleep if you're not worried about getting enough sleep anyways <laughs> exactly so, so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and if the whole point of sleep is to be relaxed well here you are already relaxed what's yeah. the point <laughs> yeah <laughs> So this is a, a new way of, of thinking about going to bed, that we're going to be paying attention to posture. We're going to pay, just like in sitting meditation, we sit upright, a walking meditation, or standing meditation. So the posture that we're in, experiencing the body, is a major part of the practice in bed. And so getting very familiar with that bed, getting very familiar with the pillow and the way that your head moves on it and other things like that. So as to allow yourself to be completely comfortable. One thing I've noticed is that um, once I've already been in jhana or have sustained jhana, I used to be really focused about posture, like, oh, is my back straight? Or like, um, I have like, a little discomfort in there or my leg but now i don't really think about my body anymore that's like not really a part of the like it's just like my body is just my body and it's just there and it's just like already in whatever posture it is but it's not it's not like the forefront of the meditation like um but i guess if your body's not relaxed then um it's more noticeable like if you're relaxed like you're not thinking about your body would you agree with that? Well, yes, that's true. But oftentimes the body carries tension and we're not thinking about that either. That's true. But when we do think about the body, we think about it with the position of relaxing the body. And so um, I would say to put a little bit of attention on that, at least to check the box. The body is completely relaxed. There's no neck tensions. There's no, uh, because in fact, that's another way that you can begin to spend the night then is to look at the body's movements. Why did the body move if the body did move? Was it because it was uncomfortable and it moved to a state of comfort? That's generally what we're looking for because mm -hmm. comfort's not going to, to last that we move throughout the night. That in fact, you could say that it's a uh, music-less dance 
that we do horizontal. We are doing the horizontal dance all night long. The body's in, in motion a lot. So start watching how the body is moving. Um, and that this is part of the reason why we're paying so closely attention to the posture of the body being on its side is to make sure that we don't put the body in a posture that is um, harmful or detrimental to the body, like sleeping on our chest or sleeping on our tailbone. And in fact, sleeping on the tailbone is, is the primary reason for the bed industry. Is because we're used to sleeping on our backs because that's what beds allow us to do. But if you are sleeping on the floor, you don't sleep on your back because your butt will hurt, your tailbone will hurt. Okay, I think I know what you're talking about now. Um, I also had that experience when I was um, going for a swim. I became like super aware of like every part of my body and like what position it was in as I was swimming. And like, it was really enjoyable. Like it was like a, like my entire body is felt like, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but it's just. Like I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. And okay, so here's the thing. Most people, when they are swimming, they're swimming with destination in mind. What you're saying that occasionally now when you're swimming, you're paying attention to the body swimming and yeah, how and marvelous that is. Yeah. Or how it used to be was while, while I'm swimming, I'm, I'm thinking about how much like like, oh, how many more sets, how much more yards am I doing or or I'm thinking about uh, like you get so used to swimming that you even though even though like that's what you're doing and it's like almost a meditation you still are thinking about um i don't know something that you're worried about or like uh, or like uh -huh. it, it, okay <laughs> well now let's let's look at this for a moment you said swimming like it was a meditation and i'm saying no that's the swimming like it was a routine or swimming like it was a habit yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a well-developed habit while you're thinking about other things. The meditation yeah. quality would be while you're swimming, you're paying attention to the body. You're yeah, paying attention I mean. to yeah. the water flow on it. You're paying attention to this stroke, and you're paying attention to what your hands and arms are doing. Yeah, same thing with driving. Like, if you're driving and you're just, all you're doing is driving and you're, you're paying complete attention to the driving, um, it's actually way more relaxing drive and you're probably not going to get pissed off at people and you're probably not going to get in a car crash and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But most people well, are driving and they're thinking about this and that. And, like, and they're not watching what you're doing. Okay, yeah. here's another example. This is a strange one, I know. And that is golf. When people are only interested in hitting the golf ball to go to where they want it to go, they're not going to be very good golfers. But you've seen all the books and you see the trainers and all of that kind of stuff. And what they begin to say is, is that if you're going to become a good golfer, you've got to pay attention to what the body is doing before, during, and after the swing that hits the ball. 
And when the golfers begin to play that kind of game with their golf, that's getting closer and closer to Zen and the art of archery. You see, Western archery is where did the arrow go? And the Zen is how did the arrow get launched? How the bow goes up, how the arrow is pulled down, how long we step with the target and let it loose. And in fact, uh, for, for dramatic situations on the movies, that when someone is, um, let us say, the um, protagonist or the hero is going to be taking a very, very desperate shot with their bow, they'll have him holding that bow back and making a very, very long calculation and making, taking aim and all of that kind of stuff. And and the movie makers are not paying attention or the audience is paying attention that he's holding a 150-pound bow fully drawn. People don't have those kind of muscles. That that's not a real bow he's got. It's a stage prop. At best, maybe 30 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> that if it's a real archery bow, you got to take, especially the Zen, the whole point about the Zen is the way that they do it is launching the area arrow so that the arrow is already close to the face. And then you pull the bow down and then let it go immediately. It's a very, very tight procedure that has to be practiced over and over and over again. And where the arrow lands is not the issue at all, is how do you draw the bow? Well, in Western uh, archery, they don't care about what you're doing so long as you hit the target. Here you are I with your swimming a... the same way. Now we can begin to have Zen in the art of swimming, which means now you're going to be paying attention to what your feet are doing and what your thighs are doing and how your body moves and all of that kind of stuff and paying attention to the body rather than paying attention to the swimming or the goal or the reps or the destination or any of that kind of stuff. That's very Western mentality rather than the Asian mentality or the Zen mentality is to watch what you're doing <laughs> and now we're going to take that so we can say zen and the art of bed <laughs> <laughs> yeah zen and the art of lying in bed right but zen and that, the that brings of... me that, that made me think of something um uh that's the difference that's the problem with western mindfulness is that that's not what they're doing so the the mindfulness uh of the body it's like it's completely it's like a profound contact like it's completely in the moment as it's happening whereas what most people are doing with mindfulness is they're like chasing the breadcrumb like picking up the breadcrumbs like after the fact like they're like okay i did that now that's like what noting is like it happened it happened already and they're like okay i drank the water and then, okay, I'm sitting here now, and then now I'm thinking about this, and then it's like it's like they're <laughs> they're playing like catch with it instead of actually being there, like in the body. Like it's a it's a quantum difference because what like <laughs> mindfulness often is people thinking about their meditation rather than experiencing it directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
or another way of saying it is more like a blow-by-blow description. Now, the blow-by-blow description is a whole lot better than not paying attention to what the body is doing at all and have the mind just off someplace else. Sure. So there's that intermediate place of a blow-by-blow description. We begin to talk to ourselves about what we're doing. But as we pay closer and closer attention to actually what we're doing, we don't need the running dialogue so much anymore. We're actually observing it. But that running dialogue is, is a very, very handy method of getting things going in a wholesome way. The example of that is as, as I'm breathing in, I say I'm breathing in and I like it. This is a nice breath. And so we talk to ourselves about the breath. But that, Later, works, that works on the wholesome. Mm-hmm. The problem is they don't do it on the wholesome. They do it on well, the whatever problems they're having. Because they're not taking the effort, the right effort. That's the missing change link, it from, right? yeah. That's the missing whole, you're right. So I would say that there offhand, there are two issues that are missing. One is the right effort to change it from unwholesome to wholesome. And then the other one is the quality of repetition and keep doing it over and over and over again. So people, for instance, like with psychotherapy, they could go to the, uh, the therapist, have a great big insight, figure out a whole bunch of stuff, and then they go home and they forget all about it. They think that maybe the inside in the therapist's office should be enough to make the changes that need to be made. And Buddha was absolutely spot on when he says, no, insight does not make the changes. Insight is to help you to remember that it's time to change. It's time to make a change over and over and over again. So those two things, the change itself, and then the repetitive nature of that changing, that's the distinctions that make um, uh, an Anapanasati practice worthwhile to do. And that's the reason why a lot of people are frustrated with Mahasi method is because they're not making any changes. They're just doing the noting. And they're not making changes over and over and over and over again. They're not even changing anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also, also, um, what what do you think? Another thing that I see that's like not actually working is like concentration practice where they, I mean, it is possible to bully the attention into one pointed concentration. Like you can do that with the breath, but but it's not necessarily wholesome. Like you're not enjoying the breath. You're just you're just holding the mind hostage on the breath, and that's and then you can do that for you can develop the ability to do that for a really long time. But as soon as you stop doing that, you're gonna be right back where you started. And it's like precisely really- so. Yes, yes. Here's an example of that, uh, Scott. Is that you? Your job or your intention is to teach this new puppy how to come when it's called. Some people are going to go tie that puppy up to a tree and then stand 50 yards away and call the puppy. Puppy can't come, it's tied down. Right? So we're actually going to be practicing sati 
which is calling the puppy and expecting the puppy to come. This is the repetition part of it, is to call it to come, to call it to come, and then it comes, okay? That our attention is going to be jumping and scattered. That's how we live our lives. The question is, is when you remember to call the mind to the fore, can you bring it to the fore? But concentration meditation is like concentrating on that thing. And you're actually now not practicing sati, you're practicing concentration. Which means that more than likely when you need it the most to get out of that and to be here in the present moment, you can't do it because you're stuck. You're in concentration. And that word concentration is merely nothing but a bad translation of the word samati. The samati means gathering the factors together, which means you've got to keep track of a whole bunch of stuff to get all of that stuff together. And concentration is all about removing sometimes vital things so that you can get down to just the essence. So, um, my my fun example is frozen concentrated orange juice. Have you ever heard of it? <laughs> it was years yeah, ago, four, no, 40, 50 years ago. But nobody drinks frozen concentrated orange juice. That's for transportation. I used to, I, I used to drink. I used to. We used to make it, make it like mix it with water and then make uh-huh. it when I was a kid. Right. Well, putting the water back in it is making it samati, and it's no longer concentrated. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> yes, it is. That's what Western meditation has is the whole system of Western meditation is based upon a set of incorrect translations. <clears throat> to where samati doesn't mean. Um, concentration, it means gathering the factors. Another one is Nibbana. Nibbana is often confused. And really, what Nibbana actually means is just chill, just cool out. Jayan, everything is okay, no problem. And yet, we've made Nibbana or Nirvana a, a magical, off the charts kind of experience. But it can be. Pardon? It can be. I feel like isn't there's different levels in Nirvana. There's the well, there's more levels. Like, you're right. There's but it's all just cool, just chill. Right, you're right. But it's like, um, I, how come you don't acknowledge that there is the the big one? You know, <laughs> like the only is it because you don't want people to make like a magical goal out of it? Um. In a way, I do talk about that kind of thing, but I speak of it as wow. And we also associate it with pity in the sense of we've got this, that feeling of strength, that feeling of power to where many people think of Nibbana is a place that happens to you or something that overwhelms one. Okay. But real pity or real top dog experience is when you know that you own this show. You've got this one. 
that but, nirvana you know, is not something that you that happens to you. Nirvana is something that you make. You do it. And that's the that's like that's jhana. That's like I understand that, and like that's transformative, and like you can do that and practice that and do it in your life. But I'm talking about um you. You don't ever talk about like a um, commonly called cessation or nirodha of that of all of sankaras, like just like the complete cessation of consciousness and uh, formations for I don't know however long, and then it comes back, and then uh, well, that's... does it? I mean, if you're actually dead and it's really uh, in cessation, well. Uh, I think it's part of our Western mentality has to do with with absolutes, where in fact everything is relative. That everything is relative. That things are not absolute. In in and but we've been taught that they are, kind of from um, Christianity and religion and whatnot like that. That we're looking for out of this world kind of stuff. And the Buddhist teaching is really how to get best value out of the stuff that's actually in your world. That's true. But I feel like it's so much more like that's like the the final stage of things. That's like uh <laughs> that's like once you once you've been to the top of the mountaintop, like that's like that's like uh... ah, but before that, when you do have those experiences, that's what gives you the sense of wow, I could do this. Wow, this does exist. Wow, yeah. I can feel this good. But it has yeah, to like... do with the quality of success rather than the quality of um having give, been given a gift that we don't deserve. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that if it's a gift like, that we don't deserve, we see how like marvelous it is, but we don't feel like that we're up to it. So here we're talking about, no, we're actually adding that best part of the ingredient is, is that not only is this it. the absolute best stuff there is, but I can do this. I can do it. <clears throat> I've yeah. got it. I can handle this. It is not something that happened to me and oh no, what happens if I lose it? I'll never see it again. Yeah. <laughs> Versus oh no, I can do this anytime. Yeah. That that, that sense of wow, that sense of um, exhilaration <clears throat> is really based upon success. The feeling of success. I, and, go ahead. Isn't that what, um, that's like the elimination of the the fetter of doubt. So like you you have that feeling I can do this. So at that point there's no more doubt. There's no Precisely more doubt in, so. in the dominant. Exactly. Knowledge and vision that this is the path. And we also have the knowledge and vision that all of that other stuff is not the path. What is and yeah. what is not the path. And we've got that. We yeah. know it. Okay, so that that confidence or that shraddha is an important quality um, or the samasankapa or that attitude and the Pali word here, then we, we could use and associate with that is the word pity. 
literally being on top of it all, knowing that we can do that. That's the success quality to it. And in fact, in this regard, the word success is really underrated. Because, oh, well, I've been successful doing this, that, and the other thing. But now we're talking about being successful at the very best that humanity has to offer. Like, this is the most important success. It's like, and this is it. it. Like, You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Feeling that we can do this, that we are on top of our own world, that we run this show, and it, and it always works out just fine. <laughs> that's like uh that's like what jesus really meant when he said um i am the way the truth and the life that's like that was what it reminds me of or when he said which is the same way of saying um i and abba are one now in the normal translations the word abba is um translated as father but a better way of looking at the word abba is looking at the english words that are very close to that and that is above and about above in the sense of that which is surrounding us and about which is around us okay so the abba and when we say that i and abba are one that means that i'm with my environment here i am I am part of it, part and parcel, integrated. Or we could say um, also in the sense of like-minded or that I'm not in conflict at all with the environment. I like the word um, exalted. Did you ever I'm, use that I'm, word? <laughs> Uh, well, I know that the word exalted actually has magical qualities. Kind of. As well as the idea that that it's better. Or that it's... But, um, but sometimes um, magical, magical can mean different things. Sometimes mm -hmm. the, way, the way you teach magical is more like superstition and stuff that's not actually there it's not real not attainable not not something that's it's just dreaming dreaming mind stuff but magic sometimes can mean like oh the magic of life like the joy of life like mm -hmm. there's a magical so it can it can have two different kind of meanings like depending on how you define right right um uh Illegitimi um, carborundum is the Latin for um, don't let the illegitimate ones grind you down, you know, carborum wheels. Okay, so what this actually means is, is that if they take that word, let them have it. Don't fight with the ones who have the word magic as their word. Go ahead. I'm in fact I could go so far as to say I'm not Buddhist. Why? Because there is a whole bunch of people who call themselves Buddhist. Let them have that word. Yeah. <laughs> so let them have that word magic. 
It doesn't belong to us. I also use that word with meditation. Let them have the word meditation. We don't meditate. We practice Anapanasati. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but going back to this word exalted, part of it has to do with the fact that it's exalted because we like it so much. And part of the reason that we like it so much is because we can't think of how could anything this good be actually real. And so exalted means that it's real, it's spe- it's, it's unusual, it's special, it's highfalutin, it's not ordinary. Yeah. Right? And okay. yet, no, what we're actually meaning by exalted is, is that we're just above it all. Yeah. Just above it all. Super mundane. Or in the Pali would be a lokatara above the world. And so this is how we want to use the word exalted rather than magical or special, but literally mm-hmm. just above everything else. And we can remain above everything else. It doesn't have to be a unique one-time shot or special or anything like that. It's actually just an attitude. An attitude of exalted. That you're better than the world. That you're above the world. You're not above other people. But that's uh, because we see humanity as just humanity. Each one of us is incapable of being exalted or in our own trash pile. And we choose to be out of our trash pile, above it all. And that's the exalted part. It's such a release. And such a relief it is. And when other people are still in their trash, that's up to them. So, uh, Scott, one of the things that I'm hearing today is is that you're actually beginning to take great delight in your practice. Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, it's been like that. It's just more consistent now. It's more I've uh, for years now, probably I I would have my moments where I take great delight in those. Wow magic magical moments that when they're over you're like oh that's some special thing to happen to me like i i don't know if i could do that but then like um through your teachings i realized that no actually you can do it like you can make the right effort to and there's no greater delight than in the dhamma so (laughs) (laughs) and yeah it's like super it's and it's like it's not something like uh yeah, it's not something far out there that can only happen on like LSD or something like that. It's like something I can do like literally every day and just mm-hmm. do it uh, going for a walk and just change my change uh, the way I, I'm feeling like. <laughs> Precisely. You're making yeah. you're making that point again about exalted. When we think of exalted in the normal sense it's unusual and rare. And here you are yeah. just walking around in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh. 
Uh, the example that I'm ha seeing now is imagine that the the, uh, the teenage girl wanted to go to the prom. And so she worked very hard and got a prom dress and that prom dress was really, really something to her. But after the prom is over. Uh, something happened and the dress got dirty, so now she wears that prom dress when she's cleaning the floor and washing dishes because it's now that dress is no longer exalted in that way. In the beginning, you see the dress was exalted. It was special. Now it's the same dress, but it's not special anymore. It's not special anymore. You can get used to being exalted. And that gives the segue into even enlightenment becomes ordinary. So what if you're enlightened? I mean, after you, Achan Po has been enlightened for 35 years, what's the point in being enlightened? <laughs> it's just lifestyle now. It doesn't yeah. mean anything anymore. For yeah. the Westerner and for the beginning students, all enlightenment's a great big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Way up there, out of reach. Something to pine over. I think there's some some beauty in that though. Like a certain it was like before I actually got into the actual practice the the fantasy of enlightenment is what draw me to it mm -hmm. so there is some like utility in that but um, you can uh, be fantasizing about enlightenment for the rest of your life and <laughs> but but if it wasn't for like um, reading I don't know the descriptions and like the over-the-top like uh, I don't know like you you see like uh, the Buddha is like some kind of superhero and, and stuff like that. Just the, like in the same way you would, you watch like a, a movie and you see your favorite like Marvel hero beat all the bad guys. And ah. it's kind of like, it's like for a child, but then eventually like you mature out of that uh, and become a spiritual adult and realize that no teacher is going to do it for you. And like, no, except for the only person that's gonna do it is yourself. Ah, and <laughs> so. if you set the goal too high, then that goal becomes unreachable. Right. Okay, that's the important thing about, for instance, those superheroes is the child knows that he will never be a superhero, but it might give him the motivation to be a sports star Mm -hmm. But he'll never be that superhero because that's a fantasy trip, okay? And by putting the Buddha way up there, that may be that you'll never get to that state of your own delusion about what the Buddha is, but it can give you motivation to do what you can do, which is quite a lot. Yeah. And so there is some value in that, um, uh, let us say, over-the-top mentality but it also can become extremely dangerous right, right because whatever we're doing now is not good enough because it's not up there in my imagination mm -hmm. and so this is where we have to come back to no make the best of what you've got right now because that's all you've got is the right now let's develop the skills of right now 
so that we can manage right now is really well. And if that right now becomes exalted, then we can handle that exaltation very well right now because we're used to handling things right here, right now. But if we keep wanting things to be exaltation, then when it happens, we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we make it super special. And, and we you, want it again. Make, you cling to it. And then and you, we, you, you, you try to grab onto it. And then as soon as you grab onto it, it's fall into your hands and you're left off uh, crash landing. So like I've done that very many times. <laughs> exactly, which is actually then the loser's mentality of where did this come from? How do I get it? I want it again. And so we're back yeah. in the state of dukkha. Yeah, but a, but a small change of attitude of, hey, I can do this. I did it this time. I can do it again. Mm. We can do this. That's that attitude that uh, really is so, um, let us say, it's it changes our right effort. In the beginning, when we don't quite think that we can do it, it takes a whole lot of effort because doubt is built into the effort. Yeah. So when remove that doubt and know that we can do it now the effort is quite easy almost energetic yeah yeah it's like uh i heard some way to talk about it is like instead of uh like a a, a hindrance is like not really a hindrance um until it like snowballs it starts off as like a snowflake mm -hmm. and it's really easy to melt snowflakes when when uh you have been melting snowflakes but if uh especially republican hard, snowflakes yeah <laughs> all kinds of snowflakes <laughs> republican democrat and uh, actually very easy to um <laughs> piss off uh, both sides of the spectrum Mm -hmm. um and 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 even almost more easy spiritual snowflakes so <laughs> that's a big one it's like mm -hmm. oh you think political people are snowflakes wait until you meet spiritual communities people. <laughs> <laughs> yes i know i've been there done that too <laughs> But they don't generally talk in that language. I'm talking about Republicans only because they're the ones who use the term so much. Yeah, that's true. They they coined the term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, this has been a really great talk. We've talked about getting to sleep and all of that kind of stuff. I got a question for you, Todd. I see that crutch beside you. It's, it's not a crutch. It's, uh, it's actually an exercise bike. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's good. It's yeah. not a crutch then. No, thank you for asking. Just, that. just, just uh, the delusion of one. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, does anybody have anything to say before we finish? David, what's happening with you? Are you there? David, you're muted if you forgot. I'll talk about sleep. He might have gone there himself. Probably, yeah, maybe he fell asleep. Okay. I think, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, it's been a yeah. uh, good talk.
Yeah, really interesting. Okay. Thank you. Uh, okay, useful. guys. Right. I'm glad that you've gotten so. I gave you something to sleep on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, guys. Well, we'll see you later. This has been yeah. a delightful chat. Thank you so much. Right. Have a great week. Yeah. Bye. Have a good moment. That's all we can hope for is this moment. Have a good one. Thank you. You too.